2: We heard you loud and clear, so go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over a hundred social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com.
1: Available to players in the U.S. excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Terms and conditions apply. I wanna be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I wanna be.
0: Hey, everybody. Just a quick thank you to all the folks out there that joined the Producers Perspective Pro last week. We had a fantastic launch, brand new webinar in the archives, all sorts of sample documents. Join the Producers Perspective Pro. You're going to love it. On with the podcast Hello, everybody. I'm Ken Davenport. This is the producer's perspective podcast. Super excited to have uh, as my guest today, someone very near and dear to my heart because she is the first producing partner I ever had. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Tony award winning Broadway producer Robin Goodman. Welcome, Robin.
2: Thank you, Ken.
0: So that show Robin and I partnered on was on Ultra Boys, which opened 11 years ago now, oh, 2005. My I know. But that's just one little blip on her incredible producing uh, resume. Most recently on Broadway, she produced Cinderella on tour as well. The performers, Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. And, of course, that little show that could, Avenue Q. And a whole bunch of off-Broadway shows. It's one of the reasons that... uh, Robin is one of my favorite producers because she's had such a long resume on both Broadway and off-Broadway, Bat Boy, Tick Tick Boom, and of course, Alter Boys. She also is the co-founder of Second Stage. Uh, now she's the special artistic consultant to the Roundabout, and word has it that she spent some time on a soap opera. <laughs> but we will get to that.
2: Oh, shame.
0: <laughs> so, Robin, why don't you just tell us how, we, how you got started in the theater
2: biz? Ah, well, when I was four and a half, my mother took me to my first show show, because my mother had been an actress and a writer on radio, and she wanted me to be in the theater. And so I went to the theater all through my childhood. We lived in New Jersey by then. We started in Brooklyn, went to New Jersey. And um, I got the bug. I wanted to be an actress. I wanted to be a famous actress, of course, not just any actress. (laughs) Um, And uh, I went to college, and I studied acting. I went to Brandeis and studied acting and came to New York as an actress, actually, and acted... For a good seven years, making a living, you know, eating a lot of uh, spaghetti. But, uh, um, and uh, I ended up getting a job rehearsing some plays that were going to London. Three plays, three new American plays. Uh, One by uh, the man who raised the money and was producing it. The other two was a play, one was a play by Susan Miller called Flux. And one was in the Boom Boom Room by David Rabe. And we were a company of two women and I think three or four men. And right before we were supposed to get on the plane, this guy came in and said, gee, I really want you to go, and the theater's waiting for you, but I don't have enough money to get you there and put you up. So <laughs> so the woman and I said, well, we're going. We don't spend all this time rehearsing. And we went out and raised, at that time, this was 1976, right? Yeah. and We raised $3,000, brought the boys on the plane, got on the plane, didn't know what the hell we were doing. We went to this little French theater and we ended up producing this and being in this season of three plays, which Michael Billington of The Guardian later said changed the tide of new American plays in London. So I really liked taking credit for that because <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. But the plays were very successful. And I stayed on and I acted in England for a while, but but it sort of gave me the producing bug, even though I was probably terrible at it at the time. And uh, when I came back... Uh I, had, I met Carol Rothman, I had auditioned for her, and I, I had taken another job, but I fixed her up with her husband, and uh, we became, She owed you one. She, yeah, or I owed, yeah, she owed me one. She came to me and said, I want to start a theater and you're the right partner, and I said, can't we just produce shows, you know, wouldn't that be more fun? She said, no, it's more fun to know you always have another show you can produce in an ongoing institution. So we spent a long time planning Second Stage and we found something that nobody else was doing at the time, giving contemporary plays another, another production. And we spent a year planning it actually and put a board together and raised money you know, enough to do the first show. And my favorite story about the second stage is, is the st- second stage is that the first show, and I'm, I suppose people can Google it, but I'm not going to say what it was because it was a disaster. The playwright, who was a military guy, threatened our lives. Our lawyer, uh, Paul Weiss, said, don't leave your apartments, you're in danger. Uh, the director quit. The two lead actors quit. The lighting designer quit. And uh, the next thing I know, uh, Carol and I were like in the fetal position in front of Joe Papp saying, what do we do? We we'd send out all these invitations and everybody in the press and blah, 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 and we're on the Upper West Side. And and Joe said, get back up there. Carol, you direct it. Robin, you do everything else. And uh, so we said, oh, my God, we have to find some actors. <laughs> so Carol called this young actor who she'd worked with at Circle Rep. His name is Jeff Daniels. And he came in, and uh, an actress that I knew named Lynn Milgram, and we did everything, and we got the play up, and it actually got decent reviews, which is amazing, uh, because, you know, we really didn't. And Carol knew how to direct, but we didn't know anything else. So... Uh, the second play we did was a huge hit. There were lines around the block, and equity shut us down. Because at the time they were trying to put a lien on the authors to pay the actors in the future if the plays went on, right? And Michael Weller said I have to stand with my my guild. <laughs> and uh it was just the worst thing that ever happened to us because we were making money and it, it was Brooke Adams and John Hurd and you know it was a wonderful production. Polly Draper, it was great. And we were really upset until I think two days later, we were on the front page of the New York times, young second stage shut down by writer's Guild. I, you know, so you never know what's going to make you put you on the map, but suddenly, I mean, they shut us down because they thought we were a bunch of kids, you know, they weren't going to shut playwrights horizons down. Next thing we knew, everybody knew what second stage was because there we were and actually, uh, It it was illegal what they were trying to do. So about two weeks later, we went back on, and we finished the run of the play. And that's how we started our theater. And it was a huge success. And and everybody, certainly in the business by that time, knew Second Stage. But everybody on the Upper West Side suddenly knew what we were.
0: (laughs) No such thing as bad press. Exactly. I have to ask why the playwright threatened your life. Because
2: he was bringing piles of rewrites every day and the director would call us at night and say this guy's insane I mean these rewrites don't make any sense and he insists I put them in so it was probably me I probably called him and said you you have to stop writing you have to let the director and the actors own the, the script and own the play right now and he went berserk
0: well, I will definitely not ask you the name of that play or that playwright. I will Google it later and include a link in this podcast <laughs> oh, no, blog.
2: No. Uh, well it's all worry. true. It's all true. Uh
0: okay, so well how do you come back from all that? That's those are really two your first your first success in London. Okay, great. And then you have you start a theatre company, these two things and they both don't go well, but they put you on the map. Yeah. And then you're like, This is this, is, this fun. is great. I'm gonna sign up for this. Well,
2: you know, it was it was exciting. I was you know, I was young and it was exciting and it was challenging and I was suddenly realizing that I had a sensibility. I was reading plays and I, I actually knew which ones I liked and which ones I didn't like and and God bless Frank Rich, he was the critic. I know everybody called him a butcher, but Frank Rich was about our age and he shared our sensibility. I, I tell you that we had all those years that I was there, 13 years, Frank was reviewing us, and, and he didn't always give us great reviews, but he got it. He got what we were doing, and he really liked the work we did, and that was a part of our success. I really believe he was big—he was the third wheel on our success, um, and that's just luck. That's just luck, you know, because sometimes you have critics who just don't get what you're trying to do or have different tastes. Because taste is something you can't explain, and you can't you can't teach it. It's just something you have inside you, you know. Um, but thirteen years it's it's a burnout job. I, I Carol is amazing that she's still doing it. Actually, you
0: you mentioned that you knew which plays you liked and you knew which plays you didn't like, and certainly we'll talk about this a little later. It's what obviously your special artistic consultancy with the Roundabout is about. And right. certainly I know you as a devourer of plays and you're the dramaturgical work we did on *Alter boys and your, your comments were so insightful. I remember. So what is it that makes you go, Oh, this is a play I like, or this, like, what do you look for when you look for a new, I,
2: I, I look for a, a fresh voice, uh, uh, someone who writes in a way that is completely individual. I also love to read something that, that I think I've never seen on stage before, either just a whole event or a character or a way of looking at the world. Um, it's it's uh, that's what the underground is for me underground is a, like a a soul feeder for me because i love doing that and i love helping people bring out in a play what they're trying to say and what they're trying to do and um and i would say if you looked at the list of plays in the underground they all have originality to them and, and something special, and all those writers are working somewhere, and film and television and theater. Stephen Karam, of course, is on Broadway. Um, you can just feel it in the in the writing. It's got a kind of energy and, and uh, freshness, I think. So
0: 13 years at second stage, yes. and then, as you said, it was a burnt-out job, and you decide you're going to
2: go out on your own. No, I decided that I needed to make more money. <laughs> Honestly, I think I was making $30,000 a year, and I was in my late 30s, and that's too old to be making $30,000 a year, and uh, I, I told everybody I was leaving, and people thought I was insane, and I said I needed a job, and, and uh, a woman named Jean Passanante, who had run New Dramatists years ago, had a job at ABC. That she, and she was leaving it to become a soap writer for a million dollars a year or something like that, and uh, she said, "Would would I like to interview for her job because they want another theater person?" I said, "I've never watched a soap opera in my entire life," and she said, "Oh, it doesn't matter. Believe me, you'll pick it up." So I got the job. I more than doubled my my salary, which was my goal, and uh, I worked in the corporate part of the of ABC, overseeing daytime and bringing writers in and. Uh, overseeing all my children and one life to live when you know I I knew a lot about acting and writing and directing but I didn't know anything about soap opera or cameras or anything like that. so that was a good point to Linda Gottlieb came in as the exact executive producer uh, she had just done dirty dancing and citizen Cohen and all these movies and she wanted to completely change the way soaps were done she brought in editing and music editing and novelists, and and Lonnie Price, and real directors, Casey Childs, and people from the theater, and she said, I want you to be my supervising producer. I said, please get me out of this corporate environment, because I'm not functioning well here. So I went over, uh, six months into my job, I went over to One Life to Live, became the supervising producer, and did that for four and a half more years. And and it was a a seven-day-a-week job, and I never went to the theater for four and a half years. Wow, it was really strange, but I loved it. I learned a lot, and I think it it improved my dramaturgy.
0: Well, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. Before we get even into the dramaturgy, is there anything that television does that theater could learn from, that they actually do better than we do?
2: Well, now, I'm, I don't think, I'm not sure about soap operas, but uh, the writing on television now is, I mean, I think those people... Should have been staying in the theater because there there's such original writing now, as you know, on television, in in uh, even in network television, cable, and everywhere, it's it's extraordinary, and you just don't have enough hours in your day. Um, but the great thing about working in in something like a soap opera or an hour drama or whatever it is, especially if it's an overarching story, like our head writer wrote a story, a six month story, they call it. It was the first gay story on television, and Ryan Felipe played the gay boy. He was like sixteen or something, and so he brings this story in. It's like pages and pages. It's wonderful, and as a producer, you get to sit in the writers' room and divide it up into weeks, days, and scenes. You you know you work with the writers, and you know everybody's thr- the best idea wins. You know, and what happens is you start to see storytelling in a very incremental way. How you keep the audience interested, how you build an arc over a long period of time. And I think it's definitely helped me, even though I think dramaturgy is a, more of a gut thing than anything else, you know, you can feel it, or I can feel it anyway. Um, I think doing that job for four and a half years improved my skill of storytelling. It really did, for that reason. Is that clear?
0: Yeah, absolutely. In, in fact, I'm, again, remembering all of the experience, especially with writers on Altar Boys.
2: Oh, wow. Yes. That was quite something. We were brave, Ken. We were brave. We just didn't give up because the music was so great. We said, we're going to nail this puppy if it's the last thing we do. We
0: certainly did. And what one of the things I really learned from you is how you deal with writers on that. Tell me a little bit about your... Uh, what you think an ideal producer writer relationship is or how you go about giving them notes or not giving them notes
2: yes um, respect is of course very important but um, I, I interviewed Hal Prince one time and I said let's talk about how we give notes okay because I have a theory about it and he said well you tell me your theory first <laughs> and I said well I don't think a director hears more than three notes so I try to start with the largest notes and give three of them. And, and maybe one is about the set or the lights or an actor, but whatever it is, if, if it's a dramaturgical note, it's got to be the biggest one first. And then I never talk like this line doesn't work. I wait. And then I just work my way through each time we get to talk. And Hal said, that's funny. You know what I do? I go to the rehearsal room and I take pages of notes and pages of notes. And then I give the director about a week. And I check off the ones that I have that he, that the director, he or she is already doing. And then I slowly start to deliver them in small doses. And I think, uh, I think that's as a philosophy, a good idea. Because when you start giving people a ton of notes, they just don't hear you. You know, I remember saying to Stafford and the writers on Alter Boys, I said, look, it's gotta, you just gotta have those boys on the stage and a band. And you need to have an event that, breaks them up, and then brings them back together again. That's all I know. And tell the writer, tell Kevin the same thing and figure it out, how to do it, because we haven't been able to.
0: That they did. But
2: usually I ask questions, and I, 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 I rarely get prescriptive. I mean, if I say, if I give them an idea, I say, this is not meant to be on the page, but here's the way I can express what i'm thinking and if you had the character blah 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 but i don't i don't like to do that if i don't have to i'd like to i like to swing wide and then if they're not hearing you each time you get more and more specific you know what i mean and you know i can't write the way they write you know it, it, they're going to come up with something better so i have to have faith in them and they have to have faith in that what i'm saying is right
0: so you are at this job, which has doubled your second stage salary, and then you decide, eh, "I'm just forget all this stuff. I'm going to go hire myself." In a way, right? That's what producers, I think, do. Well,
2: first I went to Manhattan Theater Club. You know, I did not. Know yes, that. it just because I didn't know what I was going to do. I hadn't seen theater for a long time, and it seemed all of a sudden there were these partnerships between commercial producers, and we had never had one at second stage and not for profits. And I thought, I have not seen five years of theater. I don't know what's going on. And so at just at that moment, Lynn Meadow and Michael Bush called me and said, will you, can we talk to you about coming in and helping us? Cause Lynn is building a theater and she doesn't have time and some, our literary manager is leaving and we need someone to both run the literary office and produce some of the shows. And I said, it seems crazy when I had my own theater that I would go to your theater. And she said, well, I'll give you, you know, you, you'll, you'll have some freedom. And and so I said, well, I'll do it for two years so I can get the lay of the land, which is what I did. And um, I started a reading series, and out of that reading series came Proof, which I produced for her. And I met David Lindsay Bear. We did Funny Mirrors, and uh, we did a lot of good work. I met Scott Elliott, and I met a lot of people. In fact, I met Scott Rudin, who I later produced a show with there. He was wandering the halls for some reason. And uh Daryl Roth and and Kevin and Jeffrey, I met them again. I had met them during rent because I produced Jonathan Larson's first uh workshop of uh Tick Tick Boom. And uh they had asked me if I wanted to come into rent and I was doing the soap, making a lot of money. So I thought, nah, i not gonna do some off Broadway show. That was a miss. Um so uh I did that for two years and I had a lot of fun. It was very interesting and um I read a lot of plays, and they replaced me with two people actually when I left <laughs> the literary office and the producer. Um, yeah, it was very good because I understood what was going on by the end of that, and that's when I put out my shingle. And I still had some savings, and I said, "I'm going to, I'm going to do musicals eventually because that's where you make your money, uh, but I'm going to try to learn first as I'm figuring out what I'm going to produce." Right, so. Um, the first thing I did was class act with Lonnie Price. And Lonnie knows more about musicals than most people in the world. And so I learned a great deal from him. And then I, I raised a little money for Bat Boy and did that. And, um, meanwhile, I, right as I was leaving the Manhattan Theater, theater Club, I went to BMI Workshop and saw two guys, uh, three guys and, and some puppets singing songs, singing four songs. And I fell in love and I had to convince them that I was the person to produce a musical. They wanted to do a TV show, and they didn't want to do a musical, and they were going to do another presentation of these songs. And I said, I'm telling you, it's a musical. I'm inviting my theater producer friends. And I invited all those people that I mentioned earlier, and Jeffrey Seller was the one who called me the next day and said, "I wanted, I haven't had belly laughs like that in a long time. I want to do this with you. Once I had the Rent Boys, Kevin and Jeffrey, as I like to call them, the Rent Boys, uh, all of a sudden they were paying attention to me, Bobby and Jeff. And uh, So we started on that journey from scratch, really, finding a book writer, finding a director, the whole team. It was just a a wonderful, wonderful journey, putting that show together. Do you
0: remember what you said to the writers to convince them that this was a musical, even before Kevin and Jeffrey? Like, what was... Because I find this is, of course, a lot of what producers have to do. We have to yeah. sell, persuade yes. to our point of view. And if I remember correctly, because I think I was at that same presentation. That's what of my misses. Uh, and I remember having those incredible belly laughs, but hearing, oh, they want to do a TV, TV show. show. Because right. South Park had just hit. Right. And it, this seems perfect for that.
2: Stupid. I said to them, you know... you'll get a TV show if you do a musical on Broadway. That's the path. You're not just going to get a TV show because you have some funny puppet songs. It's not enough. And you haven't got a writer, really a book writer or, you know, a TV writer. I said, this is the way you should start. And, of course, you know, they were all in love with theater, so it's not like it never would be seductive to them. But they just thought that they would make a lot more money if they could just sell it as a TV show, I think. And also, I was just me, and they didn't know... They didn't know about Second Stage. They didn't know what my history was. They didn't know... I was just a woman, you know, to them. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't until Kevin and Jeffrey came aboard that they agreed, actually, which, you know, that's fine. I don't care what reason they had, but it's... I just was... I was adamant about it. I said, you, you, this is a perfect musical. It's just... I can see it. I said, "The only thing you have to promise me is that you'll put a love story in it. It's got to have a love story. It's a musical." <laughs> and they said, "Oh, okay." <laughs> there were no love songs. It was if you were gay, and everyone's a little bit racist, and
0: and the cut tune, the uh, 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 tear it, tear up, it and up, throw, throw it, away.
2: it away. Funny song. Well, you
0: just mentioned something that I was actually going to get to later, but since you brought it up, you said um, I was a woman. Uh-huh. Do you think it's harder to be a woman producer?
2: I don't think now it's as hard as it was when I started, and it was 2000, but it seems like a sophisticated time to start. I think, I think, look, it's a man's world because men own all the theaters, you know, and that's where you have to, that's where you have to beg, <laughs> you know. Um, I do think that it's changing because there's so many smart women on Broadway now, but, uh, I, I felt it. I felt that it was, and also, you know, Guys like Bobby and Jeff, I think they felt differently about at the beginning, not by the end, but you know, until they get to know you, I think they're, it's easier to trust a man in a producing position than it is to trust a woman for certain people, and uh, it's a fight we all have all the time, it's true. I mean, now I I find, well, I've done so much now that I, I don't have that experience as much, but at the beginning, yeah, I, I think so and it, it, the people who knew me i mean tick tick boom came about because i had worked with jonathan and the estate and victoria leacock said we want you to do this for us uh but things didn't come to me like that so easily you know i had to work and metamorphoses you know it was cuz the second stage cuz there were other people who wanted to move it um
0: sounds like relationships relationships are, such a key are part of-
2: so important you know uh I I, my father told me always be nice to everybody and he was right. I mean it's one of those things you know. I mean it comes naturally hopefully, but uh, treat people well because that person who's an intern in your office, Bernie Telsey or he was an intern or Richie Jackson, you know it's like he begged me for a job and I said you're too smart for this job you you know. uh, So you never know in the future where they're going to turn up and they you know you could need something from them, but even so. It's a, it's a nicer way to go through life, being nice to people, I think, than just assuming the best of them. And uh, kindness, like Cinderella always says, kindness it is important.
0: Anything we can do to encourage more female producers to get into the game?
2: Um, I think they're getting the message. I know a lot of young women who are interested in producing, and every time I do a class at Columbia, there's a lot of women there, I think sometimes they want to run not-for-profit theaters, which is great. Uh, and sometimes, you know, if they have the ability, I mean, the problem with, as you know, Ken, if, you, if you're not a rich person or you don't have a rich husband or wife, it's a tough business because you spend a lot of time developing something. Even if you pay yourself $10,000 for three years, you know, it's like, what? Uh, or whatever, you know, whatever you pay yourself. But it's it's like you. I have three jobs. You have 14. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I still have three jobs, you know. Uh, and I do it because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that I'm not going to get a musical up in time or a play up in time or something that's paying me real money. Although I don't think pays, the plays pay real money, but musicals do, and they take a long time to develop.
0: Tell me about how you've, <laughs> cultivated, and found investors over the years. What's that process for you? Do you, do you enjoy raising money? <sighs> no,
2: I don't. I wish I did. I have met some wonderful people, though, I have to say, some really lovely people. Um, you know, at each show you do, you're, you you widen your investor base, and they are There's so many people out there who are interested in getting involved in producing. They all have more Tonys than I do. God bless them. Um, and... and I like the nice ones. <laughs> you know, I, I, I know some to stay away from, but you know, you, they're attracted to the material. Like, I mean, I, I have friends who I love and have invested in everything but one show, you know, because they just didn't turn them on. And I've never forced people, never, ever, ever. Um, I, my, I brought Ruth Hendel and Steve Hendel into, you know, investing in shows on Tick Tick Boom. And we've had a wonderful journey, but now they do their own shows, which I think is great, you know, and um, I still invite them to my readings and stuff because I love them, but I, I don't necessarily do enough, I don't, I only go to lunches or dinners with people I really like, I don't, I don't know if I do enough networking, I, I try not to steal other people's big investors, you know, because I don't, I think it's, it makes me feel uncomfortable, unless they approach me. Uh, it's a tricky thing. I mean, I, I would hope that whatever I'm producing is good enough to attract people that they're interested in And I, I always invite a lot of people that I feel good about. It's, it's. Uh, I'm trying to get Stephen and Josh, who are my partners now, to do more of it because you know I've done it for so many years—second stage years and producing years—and I, you know, it's tiring and it's not my favorite part of the job. Is it your favorite?
0: No, I mean, look, I can get myself into yes, it. Of you course. know, I can rev myself up because I think, oh, if I do this, then I'll be able to get to that opening night. And I get that'll it. That'll be magical. But I don't know many people who like it. Who like but you
2: it. know what I admire about you that I can't do? If somebody says no, I can't call them again and ask them again. And you can. And I, and I'm sure it's worked for you too. And I think that's great that you can do that. I, I would, I get embarrassed. I, I mean, just. I think they said no, and I assume people mean no, but obviously they don't always. Well, sometimes when I call them back, they
0: hang up a lot faster.
2: <laughs> so. No, but I think it's it shows passion. It shows that you really care about it, and you're really trying to make it work. Although, you know, I've had a show where it was so hard to raise money that I should have listened to my investors. Do you know what I mean? And not done the show, probably. Sometimes when you can't raise the money, it's a message.
0: You want to tell us what show that was? No.
2: <laughs> I don't I don't well
0: let's talk about that for a second every uh, producer out there working has had shows that don't work I mean that's that's no the question. way it happens more often than not and some are heartbreaking business. well so how do you deal with that heartbreak
2: oh, high fidelity was the biggest heartbreak I had I think because I loved it and I loved the people involved um, you cry when you tell people you're closing it <laughs> I do um you I, I think the most important is to you know is to make sure the creative team realizes that there's a reason the show didn't work, it doesn't mean they're not talented. You know, they they were turned out to be hugely talented. Tom Kitt won a Pulitzer and a Tony on his next show. Um and he was eviscerated by the Times. So that was a major coup for him. But, um, I was depressed for six months on, about high fidelity. I was really depressed. And Jeffrey Seller and I used to get together and say, let's analyze what, what was wrong with it. And we finally figured it out. And, uh, I mean, it was probably obvious to everybody else, but you cannot have an unlikable hero at the center of your musical. Pal Joey, Sweet Smell of Success, High Fidelity. If you don't like the guy or the gal, uh, the music is not going to fly. It's just not. No matter how interesting it is or how interesting the story is and how cool it is and all that, it's not going to work.
0: There is a serious dramaturgical truth bomb for all you writers (laughs) out there because I totally agree. Totally agree. Let's talk about Broadway for a second as a whole. Uh, If Broadway was a patient in a hospital right now, how would it be doing? Would it be doing okay, about to be released? Would it be critical condition? What do you think the state of our business is?
2: I think it would be doing well, but it would be gaining a lot of weight and getting diabetes. <laughs> I, I worry because, you know, when I grew up, you, you saw plays on Broadway, and they weren't necessarily filled with stars. You know, they were just great actors that you discovered when you went, and, and now it's really impossible. Well, please God, the humans breaks that because uh, it's a wonderful play, and it doesn't have a big star in it. It just has great actors in it. Um, but um, I think that, you know, the, everybody says, oh, Broadway is going to become a theme park. I, I don't think that. I think there's always going to be artistic people working on Broadway, trying to do good, everybody's trying to do good work. But it's also gotten a little corporate and a little... Uh, Let's do the next movie, or let's do the sequel, or let's do the brand, or, you know, and, and not that I'm not thinking about those things too, but I, I sort of come at it from a different angle, I think. It's like, if it's not good, I'm not interested. And uh, I just hope that people still want to take risks. I mean, in some, in big ways, Hamilton was a risk. Avenue Q was a risk. In the Heights, when I did In the Heights, uh, everybody said, don't move that, that little Latina who showed a Broadway. They said, don't move that little puppet show, you know. How can you do a show called Hamilton with people of color, somebody said to me. Um, So, you know, don't listen to the other voices. I mean, if you believe in something, do it, because it's the things, it's the purple cows, right? It's the purple cows that, uh, thank you, Gladwell, um, that really break the form and are successful, I think, you know. Although, you know, sometimes... Bad shows succeed because they have a great brand, and that depresses me, honestly. Me too. I know. I love Spring Awakening. I think it's one of the best things I saw this year. thank you very much. I really, I really do. I thought it was totally artistic and beautiful and just wonderfully produced and all that.
0: Thanks. You're
2: welcome.
0: Biggest change you've seen on Broadway over the last couple decades? The cost.
2: We did Avenue Q for $3.5 million. Oh
0: my gosh.
2: Can you believe?
0: You, you can hardly produce a play for $3.5 million. You, you can
2: just about produce a play without any advertising. <laughs> uh, it's frightening. Uh, the cost is the biggest change I've seen. Uh, it's just unbelievable to me that we pay so much money to do plays and musicals. I mean. you,
0: you know, I should find a producer who's open enough to take their musical like that and see what it would cost today. Like, oh, we re-budget out. Avenue yeah. Q for 2016 and see how much it would Eight cost. Eight million. At least.
2: <laughs> At least. At least. And what's happened? What's changed? It's You can't... I guess you could blame it on the unions and the real estate. That's about... You know, it's certainly not the actors and the directors and the, you know, the, the artists who are involved. So it's got to be the union people and the real estate, I think, mostly. But, you know, supply and demand can supply and demand
0: okay last question I lied second to last question Okay. as you look back on your career so far Uh anything you do differently
2: no how do you like that I think I'm so fortunate that I was able to do so many different things and now run Bucks County Playhouse and and do the Roundabout Underground and, and what I do on Broadway I think I've had a a charmed career. You know, I'm very fortunate. I, I, I came here with 500 bucks in my pocket when I came to New York and got work as an actress. And then, you know, went on from there. Not that my father didn't help me out a couple of times, but I made my way in the theater in different ways and, and learned something in television. So I feel very fortunate.
0: Okay. Now that last question, it's my genie question. (gasps) I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to your office, knocks on your door, and says, Robin, not only have you been a fantastic producer on Broadway, but I loved you in that show in London when you were an actress.
2: (laughs) When I was naked? Yes. (laughs) Thank you. Exactly.
0: I was a big fan of your soap. So I want to grant you one wish. I want you to think of what's the one thing that drives you so crazy about Broadway that makes you angry. You are, you listen to your dad about being nice to everybody. You're one of the nicest people I know. I remember this and tried to learn from you (laughs) when we worked together. Uh, What makes you mad angry that you would ask this genie to change with one snap of a finger?
2: Wow, that's a great question. Let me just think about that for a minute. Um... You can't, you can't wish for people to have better taste, I suppose, (laughs) which would be one of my wishes. Um, If I could change one thing, I don't know the answer to that, Ken, I think, I really do wish that we could make Broadway less expensive, both for the people buying tickets and the people producing theater, and I would have to brainstorm with the genie to figure out how to do that, because I think we've shut out a whole lot of audience the prices, and I understand why we charge them. No one understands it better than I do and you do, but, uh, you know, 20 seats at $25 is not enough to bring in another generation, and my core value when I started was to bring young people to the theater, but I don't know how they can afford it, and that makes me very sad, so I would say probably that would, you know, I don't know about the costs. they're probably always going to go up, but I would say what can we do about The next generation of theater goers and how, how can we make it affordable? And, and how can we get people's sensibility, including them and not doing, you know, every revival in the world, you know, or, or things that they don't relate to. That's why Hamilton is so exciting because they're actually paying for those tickets, which is wonderful. Even if they see one show a year, I guess that's what I would care about.
0: It's a very good wish. I want to thank you so much thank for you. everything you do on Broadway. Also, everything you do for me when we started. I learned so much by that Aww. show and, and partnering with you. So thank you so much for that. Uh, next up on the podcast, ooh, we're going to start do, doing something different at the end when I reveal the next guest. We're going to play how many degrees of separation between the guest in front of me right now that you're listening to and the next one. And this one, there's only one. Degree. Next up on the podcast is Bobby Lopez, ah. creator of Avenue Q, Book of Mormon, and EGOT winner. So make sure you tune in to the next episode to hear everything that Bobby's got to say and hear his perspective. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Don't forget, join the Producers Perspective Pro. You can get it on the blog or at the I'm going to be producer. <laughs> Look out,
1: bro.